Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In the late 1800s, French scientists began to make some startling discoveries about some of the rocks people dug up out of the earth. Many of these chunks of metal and minerals weren't simply cold, dead stones. Some of them appeared to be strangely alive. In fact, some of the rocks people dug up appeared to be positively sizzling with energy. In 1895, Wilhelm Rankin, a German mechanical engineer and physicist, discovered a remarkable new wavelength of invisible rays that, for a short time, became known as Rankin rays, and later by the term we're more familiar with today, X-rays. The idea that there were invisible spectrums of tiny atomic particles became the, no pun intended, hot topic of science. In 1896, the French physicist Henri Becquerel first reported he had discovered such tiny subatomic particles being emitted from the element uranium. These particles were so small they could actually pass through a sheet of metal foil and create a spattering of light spots on photographic film. Soon after, a couple of newlywed physicists named Pierre and Marie Curie picked up on Becquerel's groundbreaking work and began to expand upon it. Marie, in particular, found the idea of these rocks with their invisible pulsating energy fascinating. But as she delved deeper and began to sift through trays of uranium tailings, the fine rubble left over from processing uranium ore, she realized the emission levels being produced were higher than could be accounted for simply by uranium alone. For the next two years, the Curies continued to sift through this fine rubble and test the invisible particles being emitted. They eventually narrowed their results down and were able to prove they had discovered two entirely new elements. One they named polonium, after Marie's native country of Poland, and the other they named for radiation itself. They called that one radium. It was out of this discovery that Marie Curie proposed a new description of elements such as uranium and polonium that emitted subatomic particles. The Curie said we should describe these materials as radioactive. But of all the Curie's discoveries, radium held a special place in Marie's heart. She even referred to it as my beautiful radium. Marie Curie believed this element, above polonium and uranium, held the most promise for the future. It was a bit reminiscent of the story of Goldilocks. Of the three elements, polonium proved to be the most unstable. It burned so intensely with radiation it would burn itself out within a year. Uranium, on the other hand, was much more stable, but less energetic. It released its radiation much too slowly. But radium was the one that was just right. It produced a steady stream of energy, and it lasted a long, long time. 
with a half-life of around 1,600 years. The Curies measured radium's intensity, and it was determined to be around 3,000 times more intense than that of uranium. Within two years, the physicians made another major breakthrough when they learned that radium salts applied to a tumor could actually shrink the cancer. From there, physicians around the world began touting radium as a potential miracle cure. Newspapers described being exposed to the radioactive element akin to being warmed by the golden rays of the sun. Widespread use of radium wasn't even limited to the medical field. Soon, companies were selling bottles of radium water, radium soda, radium candy, radium jock straps, radium milk, radium toothpaste, radium-tinted cosmetics, and a wide assortment of lotions and liniments, all purporting to contain radium. A popular song titled The Radium Dance became a fad in the U.S. around 1917, after it was featured in a Broadway musical titled Piff Paff Poof. When researchers learned that some European hot springs contained radon, a gas released as radium decays, people flocked to those springs in order to bathe in the warm, healing waters. Not to be outdone by the Europeans, some ritzy spas in upstate New York began dropping uranium ore into their swimming pools in response. Ads promoting radiant health ran in all the major newspapers. Everyone wanted to get in on the chance to consume or bathe in what was described in some ads as liquid sunlight. In December 1903, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics to Marie and Pierre Curie, as well as Henri Becquerel. Marie Curie became the first woman ever to be awarded the world's top prize in physics. But the Curies never made the trip to Stockholm to accept their award in person. Marie claimed to be far too busy with work, and her husband Pierre was feeling increasingly ill. In April 1906, Pierre Curie was killed after being run over by a horse-drawn carriage. In fact, one rumor surrounding his death was that this was a direct result of whatever mystery ailment had overtaken him. According to some stories, Pierre's illness had made him too weak to jump out of the way of the carriage that ran him over. After the loss of her husband, Marie Curie focused her attention on her study of radiation. In 1911, she was awarded a second Nobel Prize, this time in the field of chemistry. She would often lecture on her discoveries and about the potential applications for radium. She was known to carry small vials of the element around in her pocket with her to show off to colleagues and audience members. She also kept radium in her desk drawer and sometimes remarked on the way it delicately glowed in the dark. During World War I, Marie Curie was instrumental in getting mobile x-ray and radiography into the field for the treatment of wounded soldiers. She also developed a special hollow needle filled with radon to sterilize wounds. Then in July 1934, a lifetime of being exposed to radiation finally caught up to Marie Curie. That was when she died of aplastic anemia in a French sanatorium. It can't be understated the profound impact Marie Curie's work had on modern medicine and our understanding of physics. Although by the time she died, it was becoming abundantly clear to scientists the dangers of being exposed to large amounts of radiation. But just a few years earlier, a number of businessmen and even some scientists worked hard to sweep those dangers under the rug. What resulted is one of the worst scandals of the early 20th century. That was when a group of young female factory workers were unwittingly exposed to dangerous levels of radium. 
What happened to them next was a story that's both tragic and horrifying. I'm Nate Hale, and I got my podcasting powers by being bitten by a radioactive microphone. And this is The Conspirators. As World War I broke out, many soldiers began to realize the pocket watches carried with them weren't suited to surviving the battlefields. Often these watches fell out of pockets and were either crushed or lost in the dirt. On top of that, even the pocket watches the men managed to hold on to turned out to be hopelessly unreadable in the dark. This led to a couple of new developments in consumer timepieces. One solution was where watch manufacturers began putting straps on those timepieces in order for men to wear them on their wrists. That solved at least one of the problems, but that still left the need to make the faces readable at night. The second issue was solved just a few years before the war broke out when a group of German scientists came up with a self-luminous paint that contained a mixture of pigment and radium salts. When these salts were mixed with a zinc compound, it caused the particles to vibrate and created a pale greenish glow. After American troops joined the war in Europe in 1917, a company called the Radium Luminous Material Corporation opened a plant in Orange, New Jersey to fulfill their freshly minted government contract to supply luminous face wristwatches to the troops. A few years later, the company would be renamed to become the much more well-known United States Radium Corporation. So from here on out, you'll hear me refer to it by that name. In order to keep up demand, U.S. Radium began putting out help-wanted ads to staff the plant. One of those jobs they were hiring for was the job of dial painter. This was something that quickly became thought of as women's work. For the young women of New Jersey, it was considered an elite job for poor working girls. Although each girl was paid only one and a half cents per watch face, this amount could add up quickly for a talented and productive worker. On average, the job paid more than three times the typical factory gig. And ladies working in the painting pool ranked in the top 5% of female workers nationwide. Many of the young women the factory hired were only teenagers. In fact, one girl who applied for the job on February 1st, 1917, named Catherine Schaub, was only 14 years old at the time. The women who did the tedious task of dial painting sat in rows at a table with a flat wooden tray full of paper dials laid out before them. Those dials were pre-printed on a black background, leaving the numerals white and ready for painting. Each dial painter was given a small quantity of greenish-white luminous paint that got its glow from radium. At the time, radium was the most valuable substance on Earth, at around $120,000 for a single gram. Although there were many health products being sold on the market that were being touted as containing radium, very few of them actually did because the cost of the element was so expensive. Because radium was so precious, the girls were expressly ordered not to waste any of the precious paint. But even still, radium had a way of getting around the plant. When Catherine Schaub started her first day on the job, she noticed how radium powder had seemingly spread everywhere. She watched amazed as little puffs of the glowing greenish dust hung in the air and settled on all the girls' heads and shoulders. In order to keep the amount of waste down and because the numerals they had to paint in were so fine and delicate, 
The women were instructed in the art of what was known as the lip-dip paint routine. The factory foreman taught them the only way they could maintain a fine point on each of their brushes was to slip them between their lips. Each time the girls did this, they would ingest a tiny amount of the radium paint. When Catherine asked if there was any danger in doing this, she was told absolutely not. In fact, it was probably good for her overall health. After all, radium was the miracle cure of its day. What the girls didn't know was this painting method was a uniquely American way of doing things. Dial factories in Switzerland during the same era painted their watch faces with solid glass rods. In France, they used small sticks with cotton wadding on the ends. Other European factories employed other methods, including sharpened wooden sticks or metal needles. Keep in mind, although the foreman and other workers encouraged one another to use the lip-dip paint routine, U.S. radium did sometimes supply an alternate method. This was a crucible of water that was changed out once a day where the girls could clean and dampen the bristles of their brushes. Although few took advantage of this after it became apparent how much quicker it was to dampen the bristles by putting them between their lips. The company's founder was Sabine von Soschaki, an Austrian-born doctor who had actually invented the luminous paint formula back in 1913. In his first year of business, Soschaki sold 2,000 of his luminous watches. By 1917, bolstered by the war, his company's sales were in the millions. At the time, Sochaki was considered one of the world's greatest authorities on radium outside the Curies. He had actually studied under Marie and Pierre Curie for a time. And there's no doubt he would have known about Pierre Curie's warnings about overexposure to radium. Pierre Curie was once said to remark that he would not trust himself in a room with a kilo of pure radium. He said that such exposure could burn the skin off his body, destroy his eyesight, and probably kill him. Besides that, Sochaki himself had come up close and personal with radium's dangerous effects. Once, a small amount of radium had gotten embedded in his left index finger. Realizing the danger he was in, he hacked the tip of his finger off. Yet, despite mutilating himself to avoid contact with radium, at other times throughout his life, Sochaki still maintained a rather laissez-faire attitude about handling it. He was known to play with test tubes with his bare hands in order to watch the substance glow in the dark. He would even sometimes dip his arm up to the elbow in radium solutions just for fun. The lab workers who handled large quantities of radium for the U.S. radium plant were provided with lead-lined aprons and other protective equipment. But Sochaki was convinced the minuscule amounts of radium other workers like the factory girls were exposed to was harmless. It was none other than Thomas Edison who operated a factory just a few miles away from the Orange, New Jersey plant, who offered his own unheeded dire warnings that no one knew the potential consequences of carelessly handling radium. After many months of operation, the factory bosses began to notice how much precious radium was being lost when the girls would use the crucibles full of water to dampen their brushes. So eventually the crucibles were removed, making the lip-dip paint method the only option the girls had left. At the end of their shifts, the girls were ushered into a dark room where they would have all the day's accumulated radium dust brushed off them so that it could be collected and reused. Some of the girls reported that they would glow in the dark from head to toe when they entered the dark room. It didn't take long after that before some of them began to refer to one another as the ghost girls. 
Some of the girls figured out early on that despite the good pay of the job just wasn't for them. One woman developed sores on her mouth after only a month of working there and quit. Others complained about the constant gritty taste they had in their mouth from the accumulation of paint that got stuck between their teeth. When Catherine Shaw broke out in what she at first thought was a terrible case of teenage acne, she went to the doctor who asked her if she had been exposed to phosphorus any time recently. Those didn't look like typical pimples, he explained to her. They were more like burns. Phosphorus was a known industrial poison from the era, but Catherine assured him she had never had any contact with the substance. Eventually, Catherine's skin cleared up on its own and she put the matter out of her mind. Even though the young women were often reminded not to waste paint, they were still young women after all. Many of them still in their early teens, which meant they also liked to play. One girl painted all her teeth with radium paint before heading out for a date with her boyfriend one evening. Others liked to dab it on like eyeshadow or other cosmetics. One young woman even snuck some of the paint out of the factory so that she could decorate the faces of her young niece and nephew while they played glow-in-the-dark cowboys and Indians. Once, one of the young women named Grace Fryer remarked how while she had been working her usual shift sticking the brush in her mouth, she looked up surprised to see the company's founder, Sabine von Sochaki, walking down the factory floor inspecting the work that was going on. When he saw what Grace was doing with the brush, he told her, Don't do that. You will get sick. Von Sochaki didn't elaborate further, and Grace was utterly confused by what he said. When she went to her supervisor to ask what the man meant, the supervisor told her he didn't mean anything by it and that the paint was harmless. By the time the war was over, thousands of young men were returning home to the States. And as a result, some of the women working at the U.S. radium factory began quitting their jobs to get married and start families of their own. During this time, there was one brief period where, out of the blue, new instructions were given to the factory women that they should sharpen their brushes by wiping them on little cloths they were provided. No explanation was given why the change in procedure, and even then it didn't last very long. After a month, the cloths were taken away because they were told they were wasting too much paint. Even though the U.S. radium plant had provided good jobs to the people of Orange, New Jersey, it wasn't long after the war had ended, and much of the patriotic fervor died down that residents began to complain. Some residents said that the factory fumes discolored their laundry. One executive personally compensated a neighbor by paying them $5, the equivalent of $68 in today's money for the damaged washing. This opened the floodgates to a mob of locals who wanted their own money for damages. After that, the factory owners laid down a strict policy where they would refuse to pay anyone compensation for damages ever again. Once the government contracts dried up, so too did a lot of the work. In the months following the war, many of the factory painters were laid off. Those women moved on with their lives, got married, and got other jobs. As time went on, though, many of those same girls began to complain about a litany of health problems. Catherine Shaw began to experience a constant ache in her hips and legs. Marguerite Carlo and Hazel Vincent began to experience chronic fatigue. It was sometimes so bad they couldn't even drag themselves out of bed in the morning. Hazel Vincent got a job with General Electric following her time with U.S. Radium. But along with her chronic fatigue, she also began experiencing a mysterious pain in her jaw. And she began losing weight at an alarming rate. She went to the company doctor, but he was unable to diagnose her illness. In October 1920, U.S. Radium ended up briefly making the local news when it was reported that the company had begun offloading the sandy waste residue from radium extraction 
and began selling it to local playgrounds to use in children's sandboxes. But some of the children's parents began complaining because the sand was bleaching their children's shoes white and causing minor burns when they played in it. In 1921, Von Sochaki found himself being unceremoniously tossed out of the company he started in a hostile takeover by the company's treasurer, Arthur Roeder. After that, the company was renamed the United States Radium Corporation, and Roeder assumed the role of company president. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we continue, I want to take a moment to tell you about one of my favorite streaming services. AMC Network Shudder is a premium streaming service, super-serving members with the best selection in genre entertainment covering horror, thrillers, and the supernatural. Shudder's expanding library of film, TV series, and originals is available on most streaming devices in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Ireland, and Germany. Their new exclusive series, The Deadlands, is now streaming. It features a slain Maori warrior, Waka Nuku Rao, who's sent back to the world of the living to redeem his sins. But the world Waka returns to is ravaged by a breach between that of the living and of the Mehe as they work to close the rift and restore balance. The series presents elements of action, adventure, and the supernatural, and was produced with a special focus on the heritage of the indigenous Maori tribe of New Zealand. Catch new episodes every Thursday. Right now you can stream the fastest, largest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment that some people have described as the Netflix of horror. You can get access to a huge selection of thrillers, horror, and supernatural for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. With your subscription, you'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on your iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Roku, Google Chromecast, and many other streaming devices. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original film and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits, including the hit Creepshow TV series produced by Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. I'm a huge horror fan, and I'm always looking for something new to watch. A couple of my recent favorites include the incredibly moving Spanish-language film Tigers and Unafraid by acclaimed director Isa Lopez. I also highly recommend the Shudder-exclusive One Cut of the Dead. In a world overstuffed with zombie movies, this one is something special. I don't want to spoil anything here, but it's far different and far more touching than you'd ever expect. From slasher movies to giallo to cult classics, revenge thrillers, modern masterpieces, and so much more. Shudder has you covered for all your horror and dark cinema needs. So get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content right now. And be sure to check out Shudder's expertly curated collection, including Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, Revenge, Belzeboth, Horror Noir, Mandy starring Nicolas Cage, and Lizzie starring Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sevigny. And don't forget to check out the acclaimed Creepshow TV series from Greg Nicotero or their latest hit, The Deadlands. To try Shutter free for 30 days, go to Shutter.com and use the promo code TC. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use promo code TC to get started. And now, back to the show. There are many terrible stories that could be told of what befell the young women who worked in the orange plant, 
but one of the worst stories of all has to be that of a girl named Molly Magia. She was one of the few girls who remained working on the factory floor following the initial wave of mass layoffs. Afterwards, there were only a handful of painters left, and Molly wasn't sure how much longer her job would last either. During this time, she began having constant toothaches. Her jaw hurt all the time. And in October 1921, she made an appointment with a dentist named Dr. Joseph Neff. At first, Neff diagnosed Molly with a common ailment known as pyorrhea, a typical inflammation of the gums. But the longer Neff cared for her, the more teeth he was forced to extract. And no matter how many extractions he did, the wounds never healed and neither did the number of ulcers that kept sprouting all over the girl's gums. Molly's dental problems became so extreme that Dr. Neff didn't even need to extract teeth anymore. They began to fall out on their own. This, of course, left her in constant agony. And on top of her dental issues, she also began to experience chronic fatigue and constant pain in her hips and legs. In January 1922, doctors tested Molly to see if she might have contracted syphilis, but those tests came back negative. As time wore on, Dr. Neff began to notice that Molly's breath began to stink like she was experiencing necrosis. Or in other words, Molly's bones were literally rotting inside her mouth. The only conclusion Dr. Neff could come to was that Molly was suffering from phosphorus poisoning. This, you may recall, was the same diagnosis Catherine Schaub's doctors had made when she broke out in spots years earlier. Dr. Neff tried to investigate for himself by going personally to the Orange, New Jersey factory, but the plant managers refused to give him a sample of the luminous paint to test because they said its formula was a trade secret. By May, no cure had come for Molly, and instead her condition only worsened. The rheumatism in her hips left her barely able to walk. She hobbled to Dr. Neff's chair. He gently opened her mouth for her and began to probe inside. Most of her teeth were gone by now. Her gums were one big, bloody mass of ulcers. That was when, to his complete horror, Molly's jawbone broke off in his fingers. He removed it just by lifting it out of her mouth. A week later, doctors removed what remained of Molly's lower jaw. After that, Molly became anemic on top of all her other health problems. In September 1922, the disease had continued eating through her soft tissues and finally worked its way to her jugular veins. On September 12th, Molly began hemorrhaging blood too fast for doctors to staunch the bleeding. Molly Maggia died a terrible and painful death. She was just 24 years old. Even though Molly's family vehemently denied it, the cause of her death was reported as syphilis. After that, dozens of girls began reporting a whole host of health issues. Many of the young women experienced joint pain, fatigue, unusual sores, throat tumors, and teeth falling out. By 1924, nine of the dial painters were dead. These were all formerly healthy young women in their 20s with little in common other than they had all worked in the U.S. radium factory. With so much bad press surrounding the now ailing business, U.S. radium did something you can see time and again throughout history with other businesses like the tobacco industry. They commissioned scientists to write a report that absolved them of any wrongdoing. In this instance, in 1924, the U.S. Radium Corporation hired a team of scientists from Harvard University to investigate the accelerating number of deaths. But even the Harvard scientists didn't completely discount the possibility there might be a connection between the health problems people were experiencing and the radium they were exposed to. 
In fact, their final report noted some concern about the thick layers of radium dust they found that it accumulated throughout the factory, that everyone must have been breathing in. This report didn't sit well with the plant managers, but they still put it forth as proof they had done nothing wrong. The report didn't impress the Newark, New Jersey medical examiner Harrison Martland. He launched his own investigation into the string of illnesses suffered by the dial painters. He had Molly Maggia's body exhumed for further study. Some stories claim the men who first dug up the girl's body were alarmed to see the skeleton faintly glowing in the grave. The tests that followed on the skeleton and other victims began to reveal something alarming about radium. It's true the girls were only consuming a minute amount of radium each time they dipped their brushes in their mouths, but because they had done this day in, day out, hundreds of times over each day, over the course of many years, they had actually ingested an enormous quantity of the radioactive element. And radium turned out to be a stealthy killer. Like ingesting calcium, the radium would bond itself to the victim's bones, but whereas calcium could strengthen bone density, radium had the opposite effect. The amount of alpha radiation being blasted out by radium would cause tiny pinprick holes to appear in the victim's skeleton. Those tiny holes would eventually grow into much larger holes, and from there the skeleton would begin to disintegrate. There was nothing doctors could do to remove the radium from the girl's skeletons. As time went on, public attitudes about radium began to change. No longer was it thought of as some sort of miracle cure for what ailed you. As scientists began to study the long-term effects of radium exposure more, it became increasingly apparent the element was dangerous. When U.S. radium's managers cried foul over Dr. Martland's findings, he confronted them with one inescapable fact about the surviving women that he said conclusively proved their bodies were riddled with radium. You see, all of the women were exhaling radon gas. In 1925, Dr. Martland published a report in the Journal of the American Medical Association detailing his findings. The year his report was published, a small group of former employees sued U.S. Radium Corporation. Only five of the radium girls that they'd come to be known in the press joined in the lawsuit. Several others accepted out-of-court settlements afraid to take on a large corporation. Many out of fear that they'd lose the jobs they currently held. But because U.S. Radium remained a wealthy and powerful corporation, their deep pockets bought them an army of high-priced lawyers who managed to drag the court case out for years. As the lawsuit dragged on, the five plaintiffs became sicker and sicker. Two of the women, Quinta McDonald and Albina Larice, were sisters. As time went on, both of Quinta's hips fractured and Albina became bedridden. One of her legs was now four inches shorter than the other. Edna Hussman lumbered around like a woman in her 90s. After years of working in the factory, her hair still glowed in the dark. Grace Fryer was forced to wear a metal brace from her neck to her hips to support her spine. And remember Catherine Schaub, who had started out on the factory floor as a wide-eyed 14-year-old girl? Like Molly Maggia, her jaws were beginning to disintegrate. Each of the girls was asking for $250,000 each in compensation. Catherine wanted hers to pay for a nice funeral. By 1928, 13 more dial painters, including Schaub's cousin, had died. This was just three years after the five radium girls had filed their lawsuit. But by that year, U.S. radium's attorneys had come up with another argument for dismissing the case. They claimed the statute of limitations had run out to file a claim of personal injury. 
They asserted that New Jersey law required court action in personal injury cases within two years of an injury. Since some of the workers had quit their jobs long before the 1925 court filing, the U.S. radium lawyers claimed the company could no longer be held responsible. But scientists on the side of the plaintiffs, including Harrison Martland, asserted that radium poisoning was unlike other personal injuries. Radium was a slow-acting toxin that could take years to produce symptoms, but would still inevitably cause a lifetime of harm. It didn't matter that these women had quit their jobs years earlier. The radium had done its damage, and all these women were still exhaling radon gas each and every day. The judges in the Newark courts agreed. The court dismissed U.S. Radium's appeal and set a trial date for June 8th in Manhattan's Federal District Court. Just over a week later, U.S. Radium Corporation moved to settle the case. The settlement was far less than the amount the plaintiffs had sued for. Each woman received $10,000, a $400 annual pension, and the guarantee of full medical care by the U.S. Radium Corporation and its insurers. It's hard to imagine being one of these five women. We don't have an official count of how many women suffered radiation poisoning after being exposed to radium from working in one of the watch factories. When you research this story, it's almost entirely focused around the Orange, New Jersey factory, but there were other such watch manufacturers using radium paint across the country. In the end, out of the hundreds or perhaps even thousands of dial painters who fell ill due to radium exposure, only five came forward to fight back. These young women never thought they were going to be the face of workplace safety. They never set out to be the heroes for a movement, nor did they expect to be dead before they were 30. They were just young girls out to make a better life for themselves. Yes, they were brave. There can be no doubt about that. But they were brave because they had to be. And it's because of their bravery that they were able to help make the workplace a little better for the rest of us. The story of the Radium Girls holds an important place in the field of health and labor rights. The rights of individuals to sue corporations for personal damages due to unsafe labor practices was established as a direct result of this case. It was also a major factor in the establishment of new laws regarding occupational health and safety. Believe it or not, even after the story became national news, radium would continue being used in watch dials all the way up to the 1970s. It was the invention of the digital watch with electronically lit numerals that finally helped end radium's use once and for all. In 2014, May Keene, who was considered to be the last radium girl, died at age 107. She had worked for a few months in the Waterbury Clock Company in Connecticut during the 1920s. Unlike a lot of the girls who worked in radium dial factories back then, May hated the work and didn't stick with it for very long. She quit when she was 18 years old. Despite that, by the time she was 40, May had lost all her teeth. Today we know so much more about the dangers of radium than we did decades ago. If you're ever in France, you can still personally visit the Pierre and Marie Curie collection of the Bibliothèque Nationale. But to do so, you'll have to sign a waiver. Like the skeletons of the many girls who worked in the radium dial factories, all of Marie Curie's notes and other belongings are still radioactive to this day. They store them in lead-lined boxes and are expected to remain emitting a radioactive glow for the next 1,500 years. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank, 
Thanks so much to Terry for signing up and helping support the show. I really appreciate it. Terry also sent me a really nice email the other day at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and I just wanted to say thanks for that too. I love hearing from all the show's fans. Just a reminder that if you're interested in signing up for our Patreon, you can get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another way you can help us out is to subscribe, review, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your reviews helps spread the good word about the conspirators to an even wider audience. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire backlog of shows. Besides that, you can find us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.